um, I'm making a Hanukkah brisket. All right. I'm not mad at yeah. that. Yeah. My, years ago, years ago, well, not that long ago, probably 2007 or eight or something like that. Lori and I and the kids were living in Arizona. And Jason Hervey, who was my business partner at that point and a close family friend, his parents were coming down to Scottsdale to hang with Jason and his family. And Jason and his family lived not too far from where I did in, in Arizona. And being that they're Jewish and grew up in New York, I thought, you know, and they were coming over to our place for Christmas. I thought, well, I'm going to make them a Hanukkah brisket. So I went to the Food Network has a whole bunch of recipes in there. And I found a really, really good recipe for Hanukkah brisket. And then uh, Mrs. B made latkes, which is like a little kind of a traditional Jewish pastry. Or not even pastry. It's, a, it's almost like a, a version of a hash brown, but they're made differently. So that's what we did for Christmas. And we're for no particular reason, we're, we're not going to be uh, sharing Christmas with any of our Jewish friends or family. So for no particular reason... We just decided to make a Hanukkah brisket, and that's the plan. You're making me look bad because uh, I do have uh, Jewish family members who are going to be present and accounted for at the Conradison Christmas, but I'm just making a regular ass prom rib. Well, I would probably do something similar if I had my big green egg, but being we're at an Airbnb and I've got one of those little propane, yeah. you know, $49 Walmart grills out in the back. Um, I decided I didn't want to try to make any really great cuts of meat on a grill. So uh, I opted to go the brisket route. Well, either way, no matter what you're sitting down to, to dine on this Christmas, we appreciate that you're getting your Christmas week started this week with us here on 83 weeks on Westwood one. Let's talk about when you were trying to take over the world. That's our topic today, December 15th, 1997. We're going to do a watch along for a very special edition of a Monday Nitro. It's very special because this is the episode where we're going to debut unbelievably Brett, the Hitman Hart. I say unbelievably because he was arguably one of the hottest, most important figures in wrestling. And now he's just jumped ship. Of course, we're on the heels of the Montreal screw job. We'll talk about that. And we're just a couple of weeks away. From the biggest WCW pay-per-view of all time, the greatest WCW storyline ever to this day. Of course, we're talking about Sting and Hulk Hogan at Starcade 1997. We've covered that in long form in our archives. We've also talked about Brett and WCW in our archives, but this time we're actually going to get a little more context because context is king, my friend. And uh, we're going to watch this episode. So far up the WWE Network, December 15th, 1997. I'll give you a quick countdown. Uh, three, two, one play. When I say play, you press play. Hopefully you've got mute. Maybe you've got your closed captioning on and, uh, we'll get this thing going. Eric, are you ready? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Three, two, one play. I love this nitro open. Just recently saw this uh, on a watch along episode with you. And this is still the classic one. I know eventually you guys would change and. When you did the whole logo change, the, the entrance would change. It's not the same, man. Cause this is when I was at the, the peak of my fandom. So this is the one that I sort of most closely relate to when I think of Monday Nitro. It was a great, great intro, um, great open in it. 
you know, it, it's really funny. Once we started getting rolling, and certainly we were rolling strong here in '97. Um, man, th- that when that when that intro would come on and that music would start to play, you knew something really cool was going to happen. And that's uh, that's that's a sign of a good intro. <laughs> here we see uh, our talking heads at the desk from left to right: Mike Tanay, Tony Schiavone, and Larry Zabisco. It's always fun to go back and, and look at 1997 fashion. You see, uh, Mike today rocking the, the no collar shirt there on the left, but the, all of them buttoned up the denim shirt for Tony Schiavone and then a turtleneck and a blazer for Larry Zabisco. Larry was the, uh, the king of style here. Was he not? He was, he was a fashionista as well as, um, you know, one of the best wrestlers that ever lived. <laughs> this scene of the dummy sting. Coming down from the roof, and of course he just crashes right through. And then when they dig him out, you know the dummy sting who crashed through the mat. Of course now, it is not the dummy sting. Great stuff, that, man. That was that was a hell of a scene. It was it was the most fucking look at there Super Dave thing ever. But there's the real Steve Borden, the real Sting, and look at the look on Hulk Hogan's face. Could he sell it? Oh my gosh. This was, this might've been, I I don't know. You know, when I see a scene like this, I think to myself, oh, this has got to have been one of the hottest scenes in that whole Sting NWO Hulk Hogan storyline. I mean, it was just, it was so good. It was just so good. That's the thing. There's, I feel like there's like 10 moments like that. You know, we've talked about, you know, uncensored 97 and the big chaos at the end of the show. That was March. This is December. I mean, these days when a storyline gets white hot, it's, you know, two weeks in three weeks in, it's not, you know, eight fucking months in. And this thing, give me, give, give me an example, just, and I don't mean to cut you off brother, but give me an example of a storyline in the last three years. That was white hot. Fair enough. Crickets? Do I hear crickets? Fair enough. Okay. Just checking. Because if I miss something, I want to know. But I, I don't think... Storylines are just not the emphasis. It doesn't appear to any longer. I mean, it angles are, you know, we'll shoot an angle. We'll see something that makes us go, oh, wow, that's cool. But I, I have yet... I, I would have a hard time putting my finger on a, what I would refer to as a storyline. Um, over the last three or four years, even marginally hot, lukewarm would be exciting. <clears throat> Sorry. Well, there's been storylines, you know, for sure. Like, let's take AEW for example, you know, the whole Cody Rhodes, MJF storyline, you know, we all saw that coming of course, and they were, they were more patient with it than I think maybe WWE would have been at any given time recently, but still, you know, it was, it was months, not, not near the, the hall that it was here. I mean, sting becomes crow sting in September of 1997 or 1996. And we don't see the, the sort of payoff with him and Hogan until December of the following year. So over a freaking year. And, and that's, a, I mean, look, I mean, that's unusual. We may or may not ever see that again. I think the audience today the television audience has morphed and changed. And a lot of that has to do with everything else that they see on television. You know, people aren't really, 
they're binge watching things now. They want the, they want they want to see all ten episodes over the course of an evening with a bowl of popcorn and a six pack of beer, right? They get their content, their sports content is, is all coming to them, you know, on their iPhones in short in short uh, pieces. Uh, everybody is consuming society. everything so much faster today that I don't think the television audience, I don't think you could have a sustained 12 month story just because not because people aren't capable of coming up with one or the talent isn't capable of executing it if they did. But I just don't think the television audience today is interested or is willing to invest. And maybe that's the key, you know, the Cody MGF storyline. Yeah, it was a by today's standards that was a long running storyline, but it didn't have the drama to support it. I don't think a storyline, just for clarification, should be judged by how long it plays out, right. but how well it plays out over a long period of time. This story played out exceptionally well over a long period of time. Didn't end that well, as we know, but that wasn't because the story wasn't there. It was because we made a bad choice to end that story. But I, I think today it would be really hard to find an audience for a protracted story. But the word is patience. You know, we're in an instant gratification Twitter society. People want real time. They want now, now, now. We're very impatient, and I can't help but wonder how much of that is just the way of the world now through technology and things like that, and how much of it is. Vince McMahon, not having patience like Vince McMahon. It feels like, you know, it, I, again, I don't know him. Not like you do certainly. Uh, but we hear that he changes his mind a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You've heard that, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. So the, the idea being, you know, he may, he may love something today and then not tomorrow and tomorrow it's the dumbest thing ever, or at least that's what we hear. So I guess my question is, do you think that wrestling has maybe changed because society has changed and the, the audience doesn't have patience or is Vince not willing to just have some patience and hang in the pocket and invest the time? Does he sort of second guess himself to the disadvantage of everyone? I, you know, I don't want to speak to, you know, what makes Vince McMahon tick or how he thinks, because I'm not capable of addressing that, um, for a lot of reasons, but I think in general, it, it, it it's a little bit of both, right? It's, you know, on one hand, if you're a producer, writer, producer, whatever you want to call it, um, and you lay out a storyline on paper that you're excited about and you get into it and after a week or two or three, you're not getting the kind of uh, support in terms of ratings or, or reaction in terms of ratings that you were anticipating. Then I think in general, not just, you know, with WWE or AEW or anybody else, the tendency is to start adjusting. The tendency is like, oh, wow, we're not doing as well as we should have done with this story or as well as I thought we would do with this story. Or God forbid, oh, my God, the ratings are down this week. What are we going to do? You know, and, and panic begins to ensue. Maybe not immediately, but it slowly starts creeping in. And as you pointed out, people start second guessing themselves. So I think what happens is, you know, or what's happening is there's nobody in, you know, a lead creative position that I'm aware of that number one lays out a story for any length of time. Um, you know, I've often heard rumors for many, many years, how 
a certain wrestling organization to remain unnamed, but one can only assume or figure it out, I guess, between the things I'm about to say, that generally there was a lot of long-term planning and working backwards and all that. I can tell you that that was not my experience. I can tell you that in most places, you know, whether it was TNA and even in WCW, by the way, I don't want to make it sound like I'm, you know, guilt-free on this, um, but only a handful of our stories, and they, ironically, they end up being some of the more interesting ones, really were planned for a specific period of time, or at least targeted over a specific period of time. By targeted, I mean, we may have only planned, you know, let's run this program for three months, get halfway into it, and realize, whoa, it's better than we thought, aka, you know, or, or for example, the Sting story. We never intended that story to play out over the course of a year when we sat down and said, okay, let's let's do something that's never been done. Let's make this, you know, a 12-month storyline or actually longer than that. That wasn't the case, really. We knew we knew what the end of the story was going to be. We knew the premise of the story. That's a better way to say it. We we had a very clear picture of the premise of the story, the first act and the second act and the and the third act to a degree. But I had no idea how how long it was going to play out. We, I think we probably talked about it initially for three or four months as its you know life expectancy. But once we got into it, it was like, holy shit, there's a lot of stuff we can do with this story so that we can make it last. And that's what we did. Yeah, and the word we always got about <clears throat> the way the WBF was booked, you know, a generation ago was they would sort of work backwards from WrestleMania and they would just you know, have their stuff sort of mapped out a year in advance and it doesn't always feel that way in 2019. That's for sure. No, there's a lot of pressure. You know, there's a lot of pressure on ratings. I keep hearing people say ratings don't matter. Um, I, I've never heard anyone from a network say that ratings don't matter, <laughs> but I keep hearing people in the wrestling business, you know, kind of dismissing the, you know, the significance of ratings. And I guess that's easy to say if you're not running a television network and you're not responsible to your shareholders uh, of that network in, in terms of keeping it profitable and, and doing the best you can uh, w- w- with that property. But, you know, whatever, at the end of the day, you know, people are living and dying, whether they admit it or not, or reacting to it at the very least week to week ratings. Uh, um, they're, they're an indicator. They tell you where your business is going. You can look at your television ratings and that'll tell you pretty much what your pay-per-view numbers are going to look like. You can look at your television ratings and it can tell you for the most part, you can extrapolate, you know, what your live event business is going to start to look like. Um, television ratings mean a lot more than people are admitting either to themselves or publicly been a uh, an interesting run here with uh, the new quote-unquote wednesday night war this past week uh, another win for nxt AEW takes the loss and even when AEW has lost in the past to nxt uh, sort of the AEW defenders would say well they may have had more viewers but we won in the demo that matters you know where advertisers are looking you know men 1834 or whatever the number is 1849 whatever we're winning those men and that's what that's what the network really cares about but this week nxt even won in that category and so the key demo that aw defenders had always sort of hung their hat on nxt even won there you know you were mr ratings back in the day one week cause for concern or too early to say 
Um, before I answer that, I want to address the AEW defenders <clears throat> that, you know, share their knowledge of, you know, the advertising world and what networks, you know, what's most important to a network and all that kind of horse shit. Um, I got news for people. Pull up a chair, get a pen. You're going to want, you're going to want to write this down. You're going to want to keep this in your pocket. So when you get into this type of a conversation with your other wrestling friends, you'll be able to speak articulately and accurately. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, 83 weeks listeners are undoubtedly the most sophisticated, knowledgeable wrestling fans out there. And they become that way by listening to the show because we share the real information. We don't bullshit anybody. No brag, just fact. It's all right here. But I got news for people. Get get ready. Write this down in three, two, one. The 18 to 49-year-old demo has always been the target. It's not like this is a new piece of business. It isn't all of a sudden why have wrestling fans latched onto the fact that, well, it doesn't matter what the ratings are. It only really matters, you know, what that key demo is. You don't know what you're talking about. You know, yes, 18 to 49 is the target. It most certainly, it's, by the way, it's a broad-ass target. Um, it is the target and it always has been the target. This isn't news, but to answer your question specifically, um, I wouldn't panic if I was AEW and, and no, you know, one week, even though it was a pretty big gap this time, um, I wouldn't sweat that I'd, I'd pay attention to it, but let's keep in mind and correct me if I'm wrong here, Connor, cause I'm not hundred percent sure I'm right on this. Um, wasn't NXT this week commercial free oh i don't know about that something tells me something tells me i i read about it that this the last week's episode was going to be commercial free now if i'm right and i could be wrong i didn't watch the show i'm not paying that close attention but if i'm right and it was a commercial free episode going up against an episode with commercials in it I would expect that NXT would do a better job of holding their audience. In fact, if they wouldn't have held their audience being commercial free, I think NXT should be, would be the ones that would be in a panic because that would be indicative of a much, much more significant issue. Now, if that's, if that's, if NXT actually ran head to head without commercials. Uh, and if that's the case, no, I, I, this is an aberration. It's, it doesn't really matter in the long run. You know, but if, it, it was the as I've said, as I've said before, if the NXT, excuse me, if NXTs or AEWs numbers continue the trajectory that they're on, uh, it's just this will be a war of attrition. This won't be a war that's building things bigger like the Monday Night Wars did. This is just a war between, you know, AEW and and the WWE, you know, C show, that's going to be determined by who can outlast the other until they start building an audience because based on what I've seen, neither of them are building an audience. They're to one degree or another. They're both losing audience. The title matches were commercial free, not the whole show. Okay. Well, even still. Yeah. Clever. Well done. That'll be interesting to see if that's something that continues. And I, I predicted it will. I predict that we'll see based on last week's numbers and and the effect that it had on AEW. I think if, if I were, if I were calling the shots, 
uh, I would be on the phone with USA Network first thing Thursday morning and, and convincing them to stick with that format and allow us to have our main event, our title matches um, commercial free because that that's how you end up stealing market share over a long period of time. Otherwise, it's just a one-off stunt and a good one, but it, in a long range, in a long run, it won't matter. Of course, what's going on in the ring right now, Big Bubba Rogers and your man, Mike Jones. Um, we also saw clips as a reminder, we're in Charlotte, North Carolina. We saw a clip of Ric Flair calling out Bret Hart for saying he was the best wrestler of all time and saying, Hey, I want you to come to Charlotte and say that. So as we know, Bret Hart is going to be here. We also saw the entire NWO a few minutes ago out here, yourself included, really jaw jacking, trying to lay the groundwork for Starcade. This has got to be, you know, and I know there's lots of peaks and valleys in your tenure with Nitro, but home stretching here to the biggest pay-per-view you guys have ever done. You got to be feeling extra confident. Do you know it? I, I was, uh, I was very confident. It was a really, it was a great time. It was just a really great time. The, the tide had definitely turned by this point. We were confident now in what we were doing and how we were doing it. Uh, not that everything we did was perfect. Clearly it wasn't. We've, we dropped a lot of bombs during this period of time too, but for the most part, uh, we were really comfortable with the direction. Turner was thrilled with the, the way things were going. I had a tremendous amount of support from Ted. So it was a very good time to be me back in December of 97. This is fun here. We see, uh, Kevin Nash dressed up as sting and smacking the giant's hand with a bat. And of course, Scott Hall stomping the hand and doing whatever he can because Kevin Nash is going to be squaring off at Starcade with the giant, uh, to see who is the true giant. And, uh, you know, I got to tell you as a kid, I was pretty excited about this as an adult. I realized had this match actually happened, it would not have been the best match T Two giant, big lumbering guys like that. While it may be a cool visual on paper, the execution is. Kevin Nash always had better matches when he had somebody to sort of work with him and work around him. When he can really throw around a Rey Mysterio or a Shawn Michaels, you get that classic David and Goliath story. Not so much for the big show. No, and you're absolutely right. You know, you put two guys who are that big together, you know, everything's slower. You, you don't have that visual impact of seeing someone like, you know, Paul White, his massive size, you know, competing against, you know, even an average size professional wrestler at that time. You know, somebody that's 240, 250. Uh, still that size discrepancy, you know, begins to tell a story before the bell rings. You know, the premise of your story is pretty well laid out for you. But when you get two giants together, you're right. You know, when I, you know, Kevin Nash at whatever he is, seven foot some. Um, over 300 pounds at that point, you know, he wasn't as big as Paul, but goddamn, there weren't many people bigger than him either, um, in the business. So it, you, you can expect a slower match. It's harder for these guys to bump in a very dramatic and effective way. Like you can, when you're smaller, if you're 230, 240 and good at it. So you're right. It just ends up being a slower uh, less interesting match when you got two big guys together. Sonny, oh no, by the way, Sonny just had open heart surgery on what day is today? Saturday. 
he had it Monday morning, by the way, in Minneapolis. And I got a text from him and he said he's doing well. Actually, he said, I sent him a text saying, hey, how are you? He goes, it hurts like hell, hoping for better days. And then he reached out to me a couple hours later and said he's actually feeling pretty good. So hopefully he's going to be home soon. Man, that's, uh, I mean, I knew he had a heart issue a while back. I know he's having open heart surgery. That's terrible. Yeah, he, uh, they, they went in. He said he's got a big zipper, you know, right down the middle of his chest. And he went in and they had to, uh, I don't know what they exactly did. He had two valves that were severely blocked. So I think they had to put stints in those valves and, or in the, yeah, in those valves and some other stuff. Pretty serious. Yeah, I hate to see that. He just, just recently uh, popped over to Japan, right? And did some TV gimmick over there talking about old school wrestling. Yeah, he was over there. Where, you know, in fact, he sent me a picture. What was it? A week ago. And he's, you know, he's flying first class on uh, Japan Airlines. And, you know, he takes a picture of the sushi they were serving him in first class. And, you know, I, I said, Sonny, where the hell are you? Because I knew he had the open heart surgery coming up. Right. And I, you know, I expected he'd be home getting ready to go get his chest cut open. And now he's on a plane heading over to Japan. He was working with Fuji TV, um, and they were doing, they are doing a special on Akira Hokuto and her time in WCW. And the fact that uh, Akira Hokuto uh, actually, and you'll get a kick out of this because I didn't know it until I did an interview with him because they interviewed me too while they were here in Florida. But Akira Hokuto uh, actually has in her possession the WCW World's Championship. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. She, she was the last person to hold it and subsequently uh, still has it in her possession. And I immediately thought of you. <laughs> oh. I don't ever love that. No, I started working for you. I'm thinking of myself as I'm doing this interview. <laughs> and, and the, you know, I was doing an interview with Fuji TV, right? They came to Tampa to sit down with me for a couple hours. And we're doing the, in the middle of this interview, I'm thinking, how do I get a message over to Akira Hokuto that I know this guy yep. that would love to have that belt, but I think she's got bigger plans for it. It's a pretty cool belt too. I mean, the uh, main plate doesn't like anything you guys ever did. So, uh, although not often seen on TV, a very interesting design to say the least collector's item to be sure. Oh, for sure. And speaking of uh, Japanese talent, we see Yuji Nagata here. Who's going to go on to have one hell of a career very early in his career here. Given the what for to Disco Inferno, and we've talked about Disco a lot here on the show, and how you and I both thought, you know, he was a utility player who could have pretty much done anything, and he made a character work that a lot of people wouldn't have been able to. But boy, these days, he sure does love keeping it stirred up on social media and on his podcast with Coney, and does he not? He does. He does. You know, he's, and, and he, before we talk about that, this is a really interesting match for Disco because, for the most part, Disco played a comedic character. Right. And it got his heat just by being such a cornball. You wanted to smack him, uh, like Sonny Ono's doing here with some pretty weak kicks. Oh, that was a nice, good spin hook kick. Nicely done, Sonny. You've redeemed yourself. Um, but this is a match where, you know, Glenn or Disco is actually pretty aggressive, looks legitimate, credible. Um, it's a different style for him. He looks good. But yeah, he does like to stir the shit, doesn't he? He's he outspoken. I like it. He can, uh, he's got different gears as a performer. He does. He does. No, I don't listen to him. You know, I've, I've been on Conan's show 
you know, with disco and I enjoy it. I love being on with those guys. It's pretty laid back. It's great. You know, every time I do one, we do it on Skype and I can, you know, I can see Conan and disco. Everybody's on camera and, you know, Conan's just banging that fucking bong during his whole show. <laughs> I just think it's great. I couldn't do it, but I think it's great that he does. Let's talk about, uh, Bret Hart as we get ready for his big debut. Uh, Brett has said of his first visit to the WCW offices in Atlanta that he bumped into Hogan, Macho, and Eric Bischoff, who smiled confidently at me as he said, confidently at me as he said, if you think you're a big star now, you're going to be an even bigger star when I'm done with you. Do you remember running into uh, Brett in the office and having some sort of similar conversation or comment? Okay, this is going to be challenging, and I don't want our listeners to be disappointed. Right, because normally, you know, when certain things are brought up that don't ring true to me, I tend to be a little aggressive about it in in the way I discuss it. And I'm I, I ran into Brett over in the UK. I don't know when it was last last, year. last spring sometime, yeah. and we you know it was it was kind of awkward because we were all sitting together and you know, Rick was Rick Flair was there and. Undertaker was there and myself and uh, a bunch of, a bunch of people were there not to just name drop for the sake of name dropping, but a lot of the, that generation of wrestlers were there, including myself. And I, you know, I wait, you know, the, <laughs> that was the first time Bret Hart and I had been in the same room since a lot of the conversations and books and shoot interviews and, you know, me mouthing off a lot of, a lot of water had, gone under the bridge by the time we were sitting together at this table. And, you know, I waited for Brett to get up and use the restroom or go get a beer or whatever he was doing. And I followed him and I pulled him off, pulled him aside. And I, you know, we spoke briefly, not long. And I made it clear to Brett that despite all the crap that went down and things that have been said back and forth, I'm done with it. You know, I don't want to live, you know, carrying that baggage around. And every time Bret Hart's name comes up, me digging for something, you know, to respond or a, a way to respond. So I, I'm going to tell you when these kind of situations come up throughout the show, I, I'm going to disagree. I'm going to tell you what I remember and don't remember and whether I think something actually happened or not, but I'm not going to color it any further than that. I, I'm just going to tell you that if the answer is no, I don't remember it happening, um, and I'm going to leave it at that. I, I, that that conversation was so out of context with regard to everybody's personalities there. You know, myself, Hogan, it, 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 who else was supposed to be there? Was it Randy? Yeah. Yeah. Neither Randy or Hulk would say something like that. That's not in their nature. And everybody knew that Brett coming in was a little bit, um, it was a little stressful for everybody. And everybody knew what Brett had gone through at WWE and the screw job. So nobody's going to, nobody's going to make a statement like that. It's just completely out of context. And one of the reasons why I'm confident it, it never happened. We just saw Disco Inferno beat Eugene Nagata clean. Meltzer would say that there's going to be a little bit of controversy about that in Japan because they're gearing up for their big Tokyo Dome show in just a couple of weeks. How about this look for Fit Finley? What do you think of this Mad Max looking jacket here? 
Mm. You don't like it. No. I love Fit Finley's work. I, I really, I respect the hell out of him as a human being and as a man. Um, but this look, yeah, just wasn't, wasn't getting it for me. I it's, I guess, you know why, Conrad? Because it's a little too similar. I mean, it looks a little bit like something the Steiners would have worn to the ring. It looks a little bit like a, a, a version of a you know, Road Warriors kind of adaptation. Um, it didn't feel original. I could see you wearing that to the bar. I did. I mean, I could, on a Harley, you pull up in that shit. Come on. Yeah. And I used to have this Viking helmet with cow horns coming out of it. The big, long looked like I had hair down to the middle of my back. So when I put, put it on, I looked like some kind of a Mongolian warrior that would look really good with that jacket. And you would pop out your front teeth, the whole deal. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So we see Just, Dean Malenko coming to the ring here. Um, Listeners to the Tony Schiavone podcast are well aware of the incredible heat between Dean Malenko and Tony Schiavone. What is up with that? Tell me more. They, they just got serious heat, man. Like they had a fucking knockdown drag out and catering a few weeks ago. Get out of here. Are you serious? Yeah. It, no, there's got to be a punchline to this. This can't be real. Of course it's not. I just made it up for the purposes of the show. And now it's a gag on the show. Oh. Like there's no chance Dean Malenko. Well, first of all, I think Dean Malenko is like one of the nicest guys ever. And the idea that Tony Schiavone is getting in a fight with anybody other than Lois just is not believable. No, well, that, that's what struck me because I was reading about it. I meant to ask you about it. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm reading about this heat that Tony and Dean Malenko have, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, something is not right here. Dean Malenko is one of the most easygoing people. He's funny. He's got a great sense of humor. His his ego, his self-image is all very healthy and well intact. And Tony is the same way. Tony's just too nice of a guy to get in a fight with anybody. And by the way, I don't think Tony fights with Lois. I think Lois may beat the shit out of Tony, but yes. in that case, he's more of a victim yes. than than a combatant. Yes. You know, and, and in order to suggest that Lois and Tony are fighting, that would suggest at least that Tony would try to defend himself either verbally, intellectually, or physically. And I can assure you, and you probably could assure me that none of that would actually ever happen. No, it's, it's Lois in a squash match every time. Oh my God. It's a 30 second squash. Yeah. Well, either way, if you can hear our voice right now, you too should take to Twitter and tweet at, uh, at Tony Schiavone. Um, and, and let him know that you disagree with his stance on Dean Malenko and, and that this is definitely very real heat with the Iceman and, and the voice of our childhood. And we just got to get that chatter going because I've had at least half a dozen guys in the business, including mutual friends of ours ask what's going on with you, with, with, with you and, and Dean Malenko and Tony Schiavone. I'm like, I, well, I, I, I just asked, oh, no. I mean, I mean, I, I, you know, and I've seen it all. I've been a part of things like this. I've, I should have sensed it, but when I kept reading about it, I go, God, it must, how the fuck could that possibly happen? Yeah. They, they got in a knockdown drag out over who was getting the last gluten-free waffle. I guess DDP was in Tony town. doesn't eat gluten-free. No, he Come does. on. He does now. He's dropped a does. bunch of LBs. Thanks to uh, DDP yoga. Oh, good for him. He's tracking it on his app and the whole deal. And it's a big deal. Oh, I was sad to see uh, that recently DDP made an announcement that he and uh, Brenda were no moss. A shout out to DDP. I know that's uh, a tough situation to go through a split like that. And 
Um, we need to support our friend Diamond Dallas Page right now. Absolutely. And I'm, you know, I read it uh, online and I also read some of DDP's quotes and comments on it. And evidently, you know, I don't, I don't know. I met Brenda one time, so I don't know Brenda real well. But uh, split amicably, amicably uh, no, no heat, no, nobody was screwing around on anybody, no, none of that. It just, you know, it was two people that, you know, grew apart and decided that uh, they were better off friends than they were husband and wife. And sometimes that happens, you know, it's, not unusual, but it's, it is unusual that people can spend some time together as husband and wife and split up and remain friends. And I'm sure that that'll be the case with DDP and Brenda. Yeah. It's weird, you know, because that's just how DDP rolls. Like gosh, probably five, six years ago when WrestleMania was in new Orleans, the first time uh, I knew Dallas and I was a few tables away and I kept looking cause I'm like, man, I could be wrong, but that looks like he's sitting with his girlfriend slash fiance, Brenda and Kimberly at the same table. And sure enough, it is, they're all friends. And, and he's maintained a friendship with Kimberly all these years. So it's not surprising to me that if, if something happens with, with him and Brendan, they have to go their separate ways. He's going to maintain that same level of dignity and respect and all of that with her as well. Yep. That's just who he is, man. What a, what a match here. You know, we just saw. I don't know. It's easy to sort of dismiss Disco Inferno, but really a great match with Disco and Eugene Nagata and now fit Finley and Dean Malenko. It's one of those deals where you don't realize how good you had it until years later, because these are two of the all-time greats here. When you just look at the technical in-ring prowess, it's a short list that you would want to make and, and fit Finley and Dean Malenko are on that list. Both of them. So believable, so believable. Their timing is great. They both know how to sell. Look at this. Pretty much flawless match so far. There was one little kerfuffle in the beginning, I think, when uh, it looked to me like Fit was making a move for a pile driver and it got a little sloppy. But other than that, this match has been, for the most part, flawless. Talk to me about formatting of the shows. You know, we, we hear that. You know, these days, even during the show, Vince could be reformatting and changing his mind. And I know eventually you would be accused of that with Nitro as well. Oh, there we see Eddie Guerrero looking only as he can look creeping down the aisle. Um, here though, you would have had your sort of your rough cut, your rough first version of the show on what day? Obviously we're on a Monday Nitro. Would you have had it the prior Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday? We would have had it laid out Friday, and then we would have fine-tuned it on Monday, you know, starting probably around 11 o'clock Monday morning. And, I, you know, I don't uh, – again, I, I want to be careful about what I say with regard to WWE and, and especially Vince. Um, I don't know that that's true, that Vince rewrites the show during the show because he's changing his mind necessarily. I guess that could be true. I don't know. I've never seen that. Um, but I have seen shows have to be reformatted um, because of timing issues, because of injuries, right. because of poor communication. There's a lot of reasons why right in the middle of a show you have to reformat it. Um, and, I, and I don't really think it comes down to just a whimsical kind of subjective opinion about what you're seeing. I think it more, more often than not, if not almost exclusively, it's a matter of having to adjust to something that happened that you weren't expecting. So talk to me about, you know, the, the formatting of the show here in 1997, you know, this is 
you know, email exists, but it's not like everybody who's on the writing staff is comfortable with email probably by 1997. How are you formatting the shows or is this all handwritten in, in a big boardroom, like a war room of sorts. And then somebody types it up for you guys, for everyone to review on Monday and you fine tune it, you, you redline it with pins or what, what does that process look like? Because the technology gap between 97 and 2019 is pretty tremendous. Yeah, it really was. And it's amazing to think about the differences between then and now as it happens. Um, you know, for the most part, you know, we would start meeting on Wednesday, generally, to start talking about the, the next week's show. So, we'd, you know, we had a big conference room in, in at WCW when we were at the CNN Center, especially. We had a conference room that would hold probably 25, 30 people if we needed it. Uh, but we, you know, everybody that was associated with booking would would all meet, and we'd spend the day, you know, bouncing ideas around, or, you know, dealing with a story that we already had, and figuring out how we were going to uh, keep that story going, or what the next chapter, or what the next, you know, beat was going to be, and then in some cases we were starting new stories, or we were laying out new matches, underneath that. So that process would start on a Wednesday. And it would go Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, by the end of the day, Friday. And usually it was Annette Yoder, who was a, a producer, would be in those meetings. Or it might be Tony or anybody else, really, that was keeping notes. And then those notes at the end of the day would be typewritten and distributed to everybody so that we had it. And we'd be looking at it. And by the time we got to TV, uh, television, uh, Craig Leathers, uh, Keith Mitchell, David Crockett to agree, all would have been involved in timing the show uh, and, and laying that show out uh, on paper. And then we'd see that typed up format Monday when we got to TV and we just started making adjustments from there as needed. We uh, got the next big segment here. And what a barn burner this is going to be. Rey Mysterio and Juventud Guerrera as a tag team. Which is, you know, these guys were longtime rivals in Mexico. And of course we saw a series of matches with them in ECW. And of course, when Ray first debuted with uh, WCW, which we've documented on our Ray Mysterio episode, but across the ring from them, psychosis and La Parca, with the exception of Conan, cause I've always sort of put him in a different category. These are the, the four most sort of prolific luchadors in WCW history. Am I right? I would tend to agree with that. You know, I'm not I'm not a luchador expert. I don't pretend I am one. But when I think of the last 20 years and the names that really stand out the most and the guys that had you know some of the greatest matches and stories and angles, you know, you're looking at four of them right there. Now, I don't mean in terms of all of you know Mexican wrestling history. I just mean from a WCW standpoint, these were the ones that were the most featured, most prominent, you know, best matches. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, the La Parca character in particular, uh, I think, uh, captured everybody's imagination, the whole chairman of the board and him dancing and, you know, he's all, <laughs> see the crotch chop. He just had, he showed a lot of personality. He really did. Um, you know, he was comedic yet believable because he was so athletic, you know, I mean that, look at that. I mean, that was a, not an easy move to make kicking somebody in the head as you're running by them without killing them. Uh, but he was able to do that pretty effectively. So he's, he was con he was comedic, but yet, you know, dangerous and aggressive, which is a great combination. Nice contrast. And he's taller than most. So, you know, he has a little more weight to him. He, he looks like 
you know, he has the size to be more of a bully in this luchador division, so to speak. But you you got two of the greatest high flyers ever, Juventud Guerrero and Rey Mysterio. And it's funny to think, you know, that I really do think you can make an argument that all time, certainly Ray is, is on the short list of most important wrestlers ever. But I think Juventud's probably on the all time most underrated. The dude, I don't, I don't remember ever seeing him have a bad match. And I'm not saying that didn't exist. I'm just saying it felt like whenever he stepped through the ropes, you were about to be entertained. No doubt, man. He, I, I love that you said that, you know, he was underrated or is underrated. Cause I, I agree. Now, part of that, I think is because, you know, he had chemical issues and drug issues and alcohol issues, and he tended to get in his own way and fuck up a lot of times, not in the ring, not in the ring. I'm just talking about in general. Um, and he was one of those guys that uh, I can tell you from my, just my perspective, Loved him as a performer. I, I even like being around him, you know, but couldn't trust him. And I don't mean trust him in the sense of, you know, I wouldn't leave my wallet, you know, no, loose no, around him. I mean, trust him in terms of not fucking up outside of the ring. How much are you willing to invest in a guy that you know is capable of going out and embarrassing himself and the company that he works for? So you you want to use him but you don't want to get too committed either because it's just, a, you know, the feeling was it's just a matter of time before he does something ridiculous. For what it's worth, Meltzer would say, uh, when he's describing this match in a match that blew away everything on either show. So he's saying that between raw and nitro, uh, this is the best match. And considering the performers, that's really not hard to believe. No, it should, you would, I guess you would expect that now, right? Yeah. And now here comes the hot tag to Rey Mysterio and the crowd. I mean, you, you guys had already made Mysterio, you know, a, uh, a major star by this point where people knew, Hey, this, this guy can fly. This guy's going to do some really special stuff. Yep. Yep. And we didn't do that for him as much as he did it for himself. You know, we obviously gave him a lot of television time, but that was television time that he earned by you know, going out there and constantly entertaining the audience and having matches that made people's jaws drop and um, being able to work with such a wide variety of people and still have great matches. That, we didn't give that to him. We didn't make Rey Mysterio. Rey Mysterio made Rey Mysterio. Well, and you guys made everybody come see this show. Sell out here, 9,320 fans, 8,499 of them were paying. The gate's over 146,000. Um, I mean, everything in this era is a sellout though. This is not the exception. This is almost the rule. WCW's bringing nitro to your town. Get your tickets. Cause them shits are selling out. It was a party, you know, and there, it was unpredictable. You never knew what to expect. That was, and that was by design. That was one of the first things that, you know, was on my list of things that we could do differently in WCW and on nitro than the WWF at that time was doing. And, and again, I may have talked about this before, you know, the unpredictability or, or creating that sense and communicating to the audience consistently week after week after week that you have to tune into Nitro because you never know what's going to happen, which is one of the reasons we didn't spend a lot of time promoting next week's matches. It's not because we didn't necessarily know what next week's matches were going to be or we were incapable of planning that far ahead. It's because we 
were reacting to research. We had focus groups all over the country. And one of the most consistent things I heard in each one of those focus groups in terms of what people liked about professional wrestling, not just WCW, but WWF at the time, you know, WCW or any other wrestling that they were familiar with. And across the boards and probably 25 different focus groups that we did around the United States in different markets, the one common comment everybody made was, I like wrestling because it's unpredictable. And we seized on that. And we wanted that show to be unpredictable. We communicated to people that it was unpredictable. One of the other things that we wanted to communicate to people was that Nitro is really a party. And we did that with the Nitro Party promotions that we did. That's how we communicated that and created that sense of, man, Nitro's on tonight. we got to get together and watch it. And there were probably more people watching Nitro in dorms during this college dormitories during this period of time than any other wrestling show. Well, that's obvious because of the ratings. But it became a thing, you know, like Monday Night Football is a thing. You know, Nitro became a thing. But it was because it was entertaining. It was unpredictable. And we provided the kind of action that we're seeing here. Really next level stuff. Look at that. Oh my gosh. I'm just watching what's going on here in the ring. It's just phenomenal. And you would think I can, you know, I can't tell how long this match was. I'm guessing it was about 12 or 14 minutes. These guys, they look stronger at the end of it than they did in the beginning. They were really, really finished this up strong. Mysterio, you know, the springboard to the uh, top rope and the, from the middle of the ring. And then, uh, having his balance there jumps down onto the ground, hurricane runners, Laparca further down the aisle. Meanwhile, off the top rope comes the Phoenix splash, the 450 from uh, Hooventude, And that's going to be your finish. We see a recap here. This looks like a highlight reel from a career, and it's just from this match. Man, these guys were so good. So good. And, you know, a lot of this stuff is sort of, you know, par for course now on a Wednesday night or a Friday night or a Monday night, but it was not in 1997. This was really, truly special. Mm, and I, I don't know. You know, I don't watch much as much wrestling as you do, but. I, I don't know that there's anybody out there today that are is consistently as good as the four guys that we just saw in the ring. There are guys that are out there that are great, not taking anything away from anybody. But the chemistry, the athleticism, the the crispness of, of what we just saw in the ring between those four guys, I don't know. If, if it's out there, please point me in that direction because I'd like to watch more of it. Uh, up next, we've got Arn Anderson, who's going to come out to a huge ovation here, as well he should. And uh, he's going to break down a little bit at the reaction from this unbelievable Charlotte crowd. And he says something like, the wrestling ring is the only place in his adult life he's felt like he's been at home. And the Charlotte Observer had run a, a big story in their paper that day with Arn Anderson talking about his career-ending injury. It's a pretty special little moment that you allowed Arn to have here and programmed for the local crowd here in Charlotte in a major way. You see everybody throwing up the four. Arn's such a class guy. 
how's this podcast doing? You guys having fun doing it? We are. Yes, sir. Making a little bit of money now and having fun doing it. And he's getting more comfortable and loosening up. And, uh, I, pre- I predict that is going to be, it, it may not happen in the next couple months, but I predict that that podcast with you and Arn is going to be one of your more popular podcasts. It may take him six months or so to get there, but you're going to get there. Well, you had a great idea. You said, you know, Arn Anderson talking to a computer is one thing, but Arn Anderson in front of you, you know, drinking a couple of old duels, he's going to make you laugh. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And hopefully you'll find a way to do that or at least once in a while. Because if you get him in that environment, I mean, the stories he has and his recall, um, the situations he's been in, and just he's such a great storyteller. He really is. And he's funny as hell. You get him on a roll, and he's just one of the funniest people you've ever been around. The wit and timing he has means that he's uh, he's holding court in any sort of group session like that, maybe backstage at a show or whatever. You know, he's a guy who, uh, who doesn't need business cards. You know, you know, in the wrestling business, you're, you're talking to Arn Anderson and I, uh, I think that's, that's important. You know, when you can establish yourself and become a known entity like that, that just your mere presence and people know, oh, this guy's, this guy's legit. It is, you know, I guess. And I just started thinking about this as we're talking about Arn, and I'm looking at him here on camera doing this interview, and I can't hear the interview, unfortunately. But, you know, one of the things about Arn is he's been so consistent in his character. You know, he he, he may have been a heel and he may have been a baby face, but there really wasn't a lot of difference between the two. Arn had so much credibility and believability, and his promos were so good that it really didn't matter. You know, he could he could play any role, but the, the heel version of, of an Arn Anderson, the babyface version of an Arn Anderson was something that you had to look for very closely to see the difference because his 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 character and his his delivery was so consistent throughout his entire career. And I think that's one of the reasons why people look up to him, you know, today as much as they do. So he's bringing out his friend, Ric Flair, of course, saying, you know, Kurt Henning, your daddy should have taught you a long time ago, better than to do what you did. Of course, talking about attacking Ric Flair at war games and we're setting up Ric Flair and Kurt for Starcade. But right now Flair's out and you guys are going to present a check for 15 grand, uh, for, um, the police officers there in Charlotte. And Doug Dillinger, you know, we didn't reference Doug, but when this scene first opened up and you saw the two police officers there in the ring with Gene Oakland also standing to Gene's right was Doug Dillinger. Doug Dillinger was our head of security, uh, real close to Dusty Rhodes. I think that's how Doug ended up in WCW, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but Doug was also uh, a, a local police officer in Charlotte. So that's how this connection all came together. Did you know Doug Dillinger was a cop? I did. Yeah. Super nice guy. He's got a hand the size. I mean, you shake hands with Doug Dillinger and it's like slamming your hand in a car door. He's got one, some of the biggest hands I've ever met. I can, and he was a big guy. Doug was a big guy himself, but he, uh, he, I mean, really the size of his fists, they were like Samsonite suitcase. I can't imagine when he was in his prime, <laughs> what it would be like to tag with a Doug Dillinger. 
by tag, I don't mean in a tag team match, but I mean out on the street. Sure. Cool little moment here. I know it probably brings, um, I don't know. I guess I'm curious. Would you have done this on TV now in 2019? Yep. 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 Because it's emotion. It's real emotion. Um, it's a good alignment. It's a good, good cause. It's positive. And it puts all four or, or all, uh, six of the people that are in this shot in a very positive light, but it really, it did a lot for Rick. It helped Rick in the market, establish him as a baby face, even more than he already was. And it was good for Arn. So yeah, I'd do this. And now we're building. And now that we've taken care of business, I, I can't hear it, but I can see the crowd reacting and I can see Rick's body language. So we went from that very credible, you know, positive moment and now we're shifting into entertainment. I love that he slowly slaps the jacket off and says, well, Gene, I needed to be conservative for a minute. Slides the jacket off and here comes the woo. And now he's giving Charlotte what they wanted to see. Well, you can see the people behind Rick. If you're watching, if you're listening to this podcast and you get a chance to watch it at home, go to WWE network, go to the in-ring uh, selection uh, uh, on the menu. Go to WCW Nitro and look for twelve fifteen ninety seven. But if you're if you're watching this, you could see when Rick was slowly reaching for that jacket and kind of took it off slowly. The people behind him, before Rick even said a word, they knew something good was coming, and they they started reacting before Rick started talking. It was awesome. I love the the big line there. Charlotte can't. Uh, the NWO can't beat me up in Charlotte, Jack. Woo! It's just. You know, hey, you may have had me in other places and other towns, but not in my town. You're going to do it here. And the crowd just bites it. Hook, line, and sinker. Good stuff. And there's the memorial. It's for uh, fallen police officers and their families and $15,000 check to, uh, to go towards that. So a pretty cool deal and a nice piece of TV. And I guess we should uh, mention right now that... Uh,
by the way, you were just out here with JJ Dillon. Uh, of course you're discussing your match, believe it or not at, uh, at, uh, at this big show coming up Starcade, and you have some, uh, some special stakes. You're going to demand that punches and kicks count. And then Dylan says submissions also have to count. I mean, I, I understand we've got to just address the match a little bit, but what's the logic here and punches and kicks count. Don't they always count? Well, they're not supposed to. I mean, theoretically, in days long gone by, you couldn't use a closed fist, right? Yeah, the referee starts counting for nothing and nothing. Yeah. Oh, look at well, Kimberly. That's roll tide right there. Let's just stop for a minute. Yeah, yeah, I'm good with it. We'll just take okay. a little time out here. This is, by the way, another uh, Eric Bischoff creation that I want to give the golf clap to. The fucking Nitro girls, the unsung heroes of Nitro. And, and, and I appreciate you saying that, but I always believe in giving um, props where props are due. That really wasn't my idea. That was Kimberly's idea. Well, I was looking for something, for some way to entertain the crowd during the commercial breaks. And you may or may not remember, uh, I had a DJ uh, yeah. that I was using for a while yep. in Nitro to, to do the same thing. And then it was Kimberly, the kid, I was looking for ways to expand upon that and try to make it, again, give Nitro the sense, not just for the television audience, but for the live audience, which is something that's critically important, especially in today's three-hour raw format or even, you know, a two-hour format. It's a long time for the audience to be sitting there through commercial breaks when you're doing live television. So I was looking for ways to kind of create some entertainment. It was Kimberly that actually came up with the idea of the Nitro Girls, and I was fully supportive of it but it wasn't my idea you tried a few different uh djs at different times did you not like R uh, ricky rackman and who well ricky rackman was a one-off uh, okay. people may or may not remember ricky rackman but he was a, a very popular dj in the los angeles market and just someone that i had you know become friendly with i don't remember how i met him but uh, he at the time he was a pretty cool dude he, he was a little controversial i think he married a porn star i can't remember which one Hmm. Um, not that that matters at all, but, uh, we use Ricky Rackman, but that was more once in a while, kind of one-offs whenever he was available. And then we used the most successful DJ that we used was a guy by the name of DJ Ran, who was really, really fun to work with and a really, really positive guy and brought a lot to the show. Oh Lord. I just had to look up Ricky Rackman and it's not just told any porn star. It's Janine Lindemulder. Who's yeah. that? She was the girl on the cover of the Blink-182 album. She had Oh, okay. Yeah, now I remember. She had a sex tape leak with uh Vince Neil once upon a time, but she was famous for being one of like vivid cover girls in the 90s. Uh, but she was like lesbian only and then she hooked up with that dude who made the bikes. Oh, Jesse James. And Jesse James. And then he left her for Sandra Bullock, I think, and it was a whole Yeah. It's a weird. She has a weird history. She's been in a couple of documentaries and I think she's had some challenges at different times. Now she's just covered head to toe in tattoos and unrecognizable. If you were a fan of hers in the nineties, like I was real time. <laughs> I knew you'd know the answer to that. That's no, why I threw it out there. I, did, I didn't, I had to Google it. Cause she didn't, I mean that, that connection, I don't know much about Ricky Reitman. So I was just Googled Ricky Reitman porn star. And I'm like, well, no whammy, no whammy, no whammy. And Jean Janine popped up. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I'm very familiar. Uh, he's a lucky man. Yeah, and that might have been at the peak of her career. 
I, I think I met her once. I think he brought her to a show. In fact, I know he did. And that was when she was first starting to kind of tat herself up. And I don't mean to, I'm not even going to say what I was about to say. No matter how I say it, it's going to come off wrong. So <laughs> fuck it. I'm going to keep it to myself. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to provide an open forum and the ammunition for people to bust my balls for the next seven days on Twitter because I said something I shouldn't say. So fuck you. I'm not going to do it. Hey, we should tell everybody uh, <laughs> one of the fun little anecdotes from uh, your visit for no holds barred Christmas weekend, where one night you and the missus, Mrs. B, uh, retired to bed after dinner and the party kept going. So you start creeping downstairs about 5 AM and we pass each other in the hall and you're like, you get up this early. And my response was, hell no, I'm going to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and by the way, it was four 30 in the morning. Yeah, I, re I remember because I was saying, okay, I've got to be really quiet. I, I got up, I looked at my phone, and it was like 4.30 or 4.28 when I was getting out of bed. I thought, i got to be really quiet because I'm sure everybody was up late. They're probably all sleeping. I don't want the dogs to bark. I, I don't want to, I want to step on anything that breaks. I'm going to just be as quiet as I can be. So I got up. I didn't want to wake up Mrs. B, so I got dressed quiet as I possibly could. Then I opened up the door ever so gently so that it didn't make any noise. And I'm creeping down the hall like a fat-ass ninja, right? And I'm making my way downstairs. And I see Conrad walking through. He's still got his jeans on. He's, hey, dude. Hey, dude. What are you doing still? <laughs> I said, no, I said that. I said, I didn't know you got up this early. <laughs> Don't. Going to bed. Wow. Long live. I couldn't do it. Yeah. We, uh, we're burning the midnight oil that day. And then I got up and here's, what's funny. I get up and I go downstairs. You know, you've got a really nice TV room down there next to your man cave and your really cool little bar right down the hall from the elevator that if you keep going down that hall and takes you out to the garage where you can see the Rolls Royce and <laughs> <laughs> And as I'm, as I'm quietly sitting, you know, in the television room and I turn the TV on, but I don't want to turn it on too loud. And I'm deaf as I'm, 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 I'm real hard of hearing. So I've got to turn the TV up loud, but I thought, no, I don't want to do that. And I look over and there's this like long, yeah, I thought it was a vibrator at first. I thought it was like a dildo and it's sitting right on the table and I'm thinking, what in the world what were these guys night. doing last night? What kind of presents did they give each other? This is crazy. So I went over to, I looked at it, and it was a tube of venison sausage. So there you go. Yeah, Michael Dawkins brought a ton of venison with him, and I think you and Mrs. B even left with a cooler full. We did, and I wanted to shout out to Michael Dawkins, number one. Great attorney. If you need a, a, a trademark attorney, he's your guy. Number one. Number two, this, the venison that he gave Mrs. B and I, we got into it right away when we got home. And it was fantastic. What a treat. By the way, we're in for a treat now. On screen, we've got Scott Hall, who cut a great promo. They go to commercial. They come back. And Chris Jericho's at the top of the ramp, makes his way down. This is before Jericho is the heel Jericho. But what a great match here. 
And man, he just sold that choke slam like crazy. And of course he's mocking the big show. Now I always loved Scott Hall, Chris Jericho matches. I felt like Scott gave Jericho a lot at a time when he really didn't have to. He did, but that's because he, you know, he didn't obviously have a crystal ball and didn't know what kind of a, a talent that Chris would go on to become. Uh, but at the same time, he respected the, the talent that he had at this point enough that he wanted to work extra hard to make Chris look extra good. That's one of the, you know, people can say what they want about Scott Hall, but if you had the goods, meaning if you could go out there and work and you were going to put in the time and you were going to do what you needed to do, he was going to go the extra mile to try to make you look as good as you possibly could. And he's doing that right here in this match. Scott Hall, great talent. Everybody recognized him, Diamond Stud, you know, Razor Ramon, NWO, Scott Hall, different, you know, personas throughout his career. Uh, but when when he was at the top of his game, there was nobody better. Nobody. Look at this character. I mean, he is so good. And I, I want to say this, you know, it's a holiday season. I think it's time, time of year, you know, where you, you start feeling good and you want to you know, bring out the best, I guess, in each other or yourself. I'll speak for myself at least. Um, Scott Hall today, I, I have as I have as much or more respect for Scott Hall today than I do almost anybody else I've worked with. Um, not because of not because of the fact he was such a great worker during the peak of his career, not because of all the things that he's accomplished, not for any other reason than what he's overcome. And not going to get into it here. This isn't the time or the place. But for decades and decades and decades, Scott Hall had demons that many of us wouldn't have been able to handle. Probably most of us wouldn't be able to handle. And he's been able to overcome them. He's not 100% you know, perfect. And he, he, he stumbles every once in a while or stubs his toe. But he's genuinely one of the people that I enjoy being around and respect the most. He's a, he's a good person. Oh man, I love these. The Nitro Party videotapes. Whose idea was this? This is great stuff. That was my idea. I mean, I, I, I will take credit for the things I should take credit for. And this this was an idea that and it started out, this was the funny part of it. This it started out as a gimmick, right? We would go and we'd you know, we'd find people to make it look like they were having a party and we'd we'd film it, but we produced it from beginning to middle to end. And then we would put it up because we would make it look like it was something that somebody had sent in, right? That was the idea. We were <laughs> we were creating the illusion that there were nitro parties happening all over the country. And then I started s- suggesting to people as part of making it feel real. Hey, and if you're throwing a nitro party, send us your videotape. Well, about four weeks later, we started getting flooded with people producing their own nitro parties and videotape and sending it in. And then we started airing those. It was awesome. And the most interesting one I ever got, Conrad, was a video of a Nitro party from Brown University. And it was a bunch of postgraduate students who were working on their PhDs uh, in biology or some kind of advanced medicine. And yet (laughs) these doctors and, you know, Brown University postgraduate students were all sitting around having a nitro party. It was awesome. That's that's elevating your audience. That's that's building and elevating an audience right there. 
I love the old, the preceding announcement has been paid for by the new world order. And how, how about this? Larry's out. Bobby Heenan's in. God damn. I love Bobby Heenan. He was the best. Miss him. Miss him a lot. Miss his sense of humor. Miss his talent. Miss his believability. And I really miss, I miss his storytelling at the bar after the show. Oh, this didn't look good. Yeah. Mongo is supposed to wrestle here. Um, you're going to love, maybe you won't. Steven Michael was supposed to wrestle Ming. Thankfully that never happened. This comes from a theme server. <laughs> I love Steve as a, as a person in real life, as a guy to belly up to the bar with and have some drinks and bullshit. And he has a, a funny philosophy about life and well, pretty much everything. You gotta assume like one of the specific torture devices that we could use would be to just force people sort of clockwork arm style to watch Mongo McMichael matches. Wow. That's so cold. Like waterboarding or Mongo matches. Just you know, take your pick, motherfucker. Either way you're tapping out. Give us the information. <laughs> Brutal, Conrad. You're brutal. Oh, come on, that's funny. Nah, it's mean. Oh, jeez. Mean. It's Christmas time. You, th- you threw mean. coffee on Eddie Guerrero. Don't tell me it's mean. I didn't throw coffee on Eddie Guerrero. See, that's a kind of nonsense. <laughs> that's a kind of bullshit narrative that continues to exist because of comments like that. I didn't throw coffee at Eddie Guerrero. Eddie Guerrero. I threw coffee on the ground while I was in a heated argument with Eddie Guerrero and it splashed on him. There's a massive difference, a massive difference between throwing a cup of coffee at somebody, which could be considered in most courts as assault or just getting angry and frustrated and throwing a cup of coffee on the ground and it splattering on somebody. Those are two different things. Let's be clear. What happened here, Conrad? I was I was in the middle of a rant. So uh, Goldberg laid out Mongo, and now Goldberg's coming to the ring instead. Goldberg. Why did he Why did he lay out Mongo? What was the reason for that? Well, they're they're battling over. They got football beef. You see. Oh, yeah. He's a bear. And he's a falcon. God damn it! That'll do it. Did you see uh, Goldberg on the uh, latest? Uh, Broken skull session on the uh, network, him and Steve Austin sitting down to chop it up. I did not. I'm going to see it probably this weekend. I'd like to like to see it. And, uh, I want to hear Steve's new show since he's been on WWE. I haven't, haven't been able to hear it yet. How is it? Oh, watch the undertaker one. If you watch the Goldberg one, you may get injured, but watch the undertaker one. It's real good. I may get injured. Yeah. 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 Why would I get injured? Well, I was nervous for Austin when I heard he'd be in the same room with Goldberg. I mean, everybody Goldberg touches, he gives a concussion to or whatever. <laughs> See, there you go again. Kind of the grinch. Somebody asked me the other day, I did the, uh, the after 83 weeks show with Christy Olson on YouTube. And she said, so since you were at the no holds bar Christmas party with Conrad Thompson, let me ask you a couple Christmas like questions, Christmas themed questions. And he said, of all the people at that party, who would most likely 
you know, be considered the Grinch. Oh, you said maybe. And I, I, I said, look, everybody at that party was super chill. We were all having fun. You know, it was really laid back. It was really fun. So it's hard for me to say, but I think deep down inside, Conrad Thompson probably has the potential <laughs> to be more Grinch-like than anybody else in that party. Not in real life, just on the show. No, were you burying people here over the Christmas holidays? You're burying Bill Goldberg. You're burying Steve McMichael. You're just burying people, and I don't for, get that. For entertainment purposes on the show. By the way, I need Kimberly to do that Arsenio Hall whoop whoop move a little more. A little more, a little more often? Yeah. She did a real good job with that. Let's get some more of the Arsenio Hall whoop whoop moves. These girls are pretty good. Dude, this is like, this is the best nitro ever. <laughs> well, from a nitro girl perspective, this might maybe, be the best nitro right. ever. You might be right on that. Now, you know, what's funny is, you know, we say some silly, outrageous things here on the show sometimes. Guys, we're just trying to entertain you. That's not everything. Yes. In real life, Steve's great. I'm sure st- I'm sure uh, Goldberg is too. But it's a gimmick that I shit on Brutus the Barber. No, Goldberg, Go- Goldberg's not. He's not. Makes <laughs> 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 it better. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's a fun thing you guys used to do. When Conan would come out, you would do like the 1960s version of the Batman villain angle with the camera and just tilt it to the side a little bit. I loved it. I, I just wish occasionally, you know, Conan would have done like the fake punch at the screen and you would have done pow, bam. God, I wish I would have had that idea back then. That would have been fun. Conan, for whatever reason, was just born cool. And, you know, even if there were certain members of the NWO that weren't cool, as it's been nicknamed in the dirt sheets, the B team NWO, when Conan was with them, he sort of lent them his credibility and they became a little less lame, a little more cool. To, to a degree, not unlike Sean Waltman. Yeah, you know, I would agree. I've said this before. Sean, Sean just brought a quality, an attitude, a persona, whatever it was. He brought something that was so unique uh, that it really added value. He didn't get diluted by Hogan hall and and nash he he actually made them a little bit stronger because of his edge and i think conan definitely without question fell into the same category conan you know wasn't the best worker you know all of the you know all of the things that most you know hardcore wrestling loyal loyalists that spend too much time you know on chat rooms or reading dirt sheets you know they all judge people by their work rate and while Conan may not have had, you know, the highest work rate factor amongst the people that he worked with, he probably, uh, in terms of charisma and character, probably outranked most of them. I mean, he just, he really brought, you know, he was a good worker. He was a solid worker. He was believable when he needed to be and wanted to be. But the character that he brought to the ring uh, and the credibility more than anything made up for it. You know, now feels uh, like just as good a time as any to remind everybody that you all know the risks of driving drunk. You could get in a crash. People could get hurt or killed. Let's take a moment to look at some surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the U.S. die every day in alcohol-impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. 
Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Many people are unaware that driving while high can be just as dangerous. In 2015, 42% of drivers killed in crashes tested positive for drugs. Not so harmless after all, is it? And get this, between 07 and 2015, marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled. The truth is, driving while high is deadly. So stop kidding yourself. If you're impaired from drugs or alcohol, don't get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different. Drive high, get a DUI. Drive sober or get pulled over. And uh, in the ring here, we see the Steiner brothers. We've got Rick Steiner in there right now with Scott Norton. Ooh. That was bad. Ooh. Rick Steiner um, lands on his head after a botched power slam effort from Scott Norton, but he's right back up and they're back in the thick of things. <laughs> Scott had to do that himself. Yeah. I think he got his bell rung there just a little bit when he hit the mat. Something he- WWE started doing a few years ago that now I think referees all across the world have adopted is when somebody takes a spill like that, the referee will go over and sort of put his hand in the, uh, in the performer's hand. So the performer who just maybe accidentally got dropped on their head can just squeeze his hand back to let him know, Hey, I'm okay. And if there's no squeeze, the referee knows, Hey, we may have a problem, but in this era with Mickey J here, that protocol didn't exist. So nobody's checking on Rick. They just go right back into another move. There's some beef in that. This one, this isn't clicking between Norton and Rick is loopy here. Rick needs to tag out and let Scott do some stuff here, but he's, he's yet, I guess the story is, you know, they're going to cut the ring off and let the heels get the heat, but we need to call an audible here. Scott needs to get in the ring. Rick is sluggish. He's not himself. No, even that, I mean, he's, he is definitely hurting here. Yeah. He ain't there. And he, I tell you what, Rick Steiner's got to be physically one of the toughest people that I know. I mean, he's got a head like a cinder block. Everybody in that ring does right now. You know, you look at Norton, you look at Scott Steiner, Rick Steiner, and even Conan, you know, these are four guys that could definitely take a shot. I was going to ask you, you know, these are four of the biggest badasses maybe ever in the history of wrestling. I mean, you know, obviously there's exceptions like Haku here or there, but. I mean, you wouldn't want to be in a, in a dark alley with any four of these guys. My goodness. No. I mean, Scott Steiner's crazy. Rick Steiner would tie you up like a pretzel. Conan just knows some shit and Scott Norton could pick you up and fucking break you in half and dump you out. Scott Norton is twice as strong as he looks and he looks really strong. Yeah. The, the term barrel chested exists. And then you meet Scott Norton and you realize, oh no, that's what it really is. He's keg chested. Yeah. <laughs> no doubt about it. How is Conan like in the middle of everything wrestling always for decades? Like right now he works for like a dozen companies. He's a political animal and he's smart and he's talented and he brings value. You know, I don't know why we would be surprised. He's not ready. To, he's not ready to hang it up yet. Ooh, ooh! Just saw that replay of that uh, attempted power slam. That was not pretty. Here we're going to get another look at it. 
Watch this. Oh, Rick got to him too fast. Scott didn't have his balance by the time Rick right got to him. Right on his head. My goodness. Yeah. No, the timing was just off there, and Rick got to Scott before Scott was planted. He was still getting his feet underneath him when Rick hit him. Ugh. I hate to see that. We should mention, uh, since we've got Bret Hart's segment coming up here before you know it, um, I do want to, uh, sort of recap what Brett had to say about this. He says, I made my WCW debut the next day at a sold out nitro in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was a bit surprised that it didn't feel that much different than a WWF show. WCW was loaded with hard work, hardworking Mexican boys. I've never been much of a Lucha Libre fan until I saw the dedication and effort those wrestlers put in every night. In particular, I love the amazing work of young Rey Mysterio Jr. A mass lightweight Mexican who could spin through up and over the ropes with backflips and beautiful dives and rolls. In my opinion, he is the most talented Mexican wrestler there ever has been. I felt much respect for all the Mexican boys that came to me and shake my hand. Paul white, the new giant of wrestling at seven foot two and 400 pounds lumbered up to say hello. And there were old timers like Roddy Piper and Ric Flair and great young talent, including a powerhouse Booker T and from the stampede category or territory, Chris Benoit and Chris Jericho, even miss Elizabeth was there now working as Lex Luger's valet. Kurt Henning gave me a big warm smile and a slap on the back. And I felt honored to shake Rick Rude's hand. He'd been at a taped raw on November 17th, which aired on November 24th, just as he walked out live on nitro. This was the first and only time a wrestler appeared for both organizations on TV at the same time. Raw was taped on alternate weeks from the live nitros and Bischoff would give out the results on raw matches before they aired and rude walked out and delivered a well-spoken monologue about the rights and wrongs of professional wrestling. And he said it was wrong for Sean to claim he was the world champion when Vince had cheated me out of the title. A lot of wrestlers were disgusted by what Vince had done in Montreal, but Rick rude was one of the few who actually quit the WWF for good over it. So, you know, we're going to get to, uh, the actual segment, uh, here in just a few minutes here on the show, but Brett would write, uh, of his segment, uh, that first night in the WCW dressing room in Charlotte, I also met Steve Borden known as sting. The hardworking pioneer of WCW was a well-built born again, Christian with long, dark hair who worked with a white painted face gimmick based on the movie, the crow for his entrance. He was lowered from the rafters on a steel cable. He'd been famous for his scorpion deathlock long before I ever came up with my own variation of the sharpshooter. And Brett would say, I was bedazzled enough by that sold out nitro for the first time. I felt that WCW might actually work out for me. I had a great first interview and got a good pop when I said, nobody knows better than me what it's like to get screwed by a referee. That comment set me up to referee Hogan's world title match with sting at Starcade 97 in Washington, DC on December 28th. Personally, I thought appearing as a referee would be a lackluster debut, but what did I know and what did I care? I wanted to comply to do whatever they asked me to the best of my ability, win, lose, or draw, and then pick up my check and come home safe. Nobody would accuse me of taking this business too seriously ever again. Did you ever have a conversation like that with Brett? Because Brett, for better or worse, has always had a reputation, at least in his WWF run, as taking himself too seriously. I mean, Scott Hall would even be famous for saying Brett was the $400,000 world champion. The concept being he didn't care how much money he made as long as he was champion. 
and other folks would poke fun at Brett for his house sort of being a shrine to himself where he's got all of his movie covers and action figures and, you know, magazines. And he's just got a lot of his memorabilia from his career adorning the walls of his own house. And some people thought "Mm, that's a little much. He takes himself too seriously. Did he indicate to you that he was going to change his approach here and that he realized he had been taking it too seriously? Or did you ever have such a conversation? Never had a conversation remotely like that. You know, I, and I, and I want to say, because I know it's it's so much easier to, you know, dig up the things that he said about me in the past or others in WCW or things that I've said about him in the past. That's all stuff that we can stir the, you know, the audience up with and get people to react to and all that. But um, my, at this point, you know, my relationship with Brett and the conversations that we had up until this point were really solid. I mean, to me, Brett, when I say solid, I mean grounded. Um, Brett was probably just in terms of my conversations with him and my dealings with him and my impressions of him at that time uh, was that he was one of the most grounded, you know, normal people that I did business with. You know, when, when, when we did talk, we very rarely talked about wrestling, you know, when we weren't in the arena or specifically on the phone talking about a match with the that was coming up or somebody was laying out. But when we did talk, you know, Brett, Brett's a big fan of history, native American history, uh, in particular, we had a lot of similar interests, uh, outside of wrestling. So at this point, you know, in our relationship, most of the conversations that I had with Brett were about as normal as any conversation I've ever had with anybody. There was, there was a hit and I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat this, uh, really, you know, Brett was, probably more affected uh, by what happened in Montreal than I think a lot of people felt he should have been. It was a horrible thing. It was a bad thing. It was a you know completely you know horrible situation and all that. But once it's over, it's over. You know, you got to kind of move on and you know look for something positive to do next. And Brett had a hard time letting that go. He was carrying that around with him and it was it was pretty obvious in a lot of conversations that we had. Booker T tearing it up right now with, uh, the macho man and the flock is seated front row. And by the way, this is 1997 Booker T still a part of Harlem heat Booker T, but you could tell even here, man, this guy's got the look and work to be a big time star. So much. So it's such a great guy to work with. He is, uh, I, you know, I know I, I catch myself saying this all the time, and I, I, I need to be more careful about how I say things. Of all of the people that I've really, really enjoyed working with, and there are many of them, Booker T is at, you know, the, in the top three on that list. He's just number one. He's such a pro, and he's always looking for a positive way to, 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 to address a negative situation, whether it's a match that he's, that we're proposing to, we were proposing to him at the time or an interview or whatever it was, his approach to things was always really positive. And most of the time, you know, a very contagious laugh, uh, populated most of the conversations that, that you would have with him. Just a great guy to be around and an amazing talent, really athletic guy. 
Yeah, selling I mean, his ass off right here for Randy Savage. Well, he knows, you know, what this means. I mean, he's got to know what it means. Look at that. A fan trying to do a run in Savage kicks the shit out of him and the police swarm him. Hey, today's the bad day to do this. They got the entire police staff there. And we just, <laughs> and we just gave them 15 grand. <laughs> They're going to kick your ass, buddy. What are you doing? <laughs> You'd have been better off with Randy. <laughs> How about that spin kick? You see Booker T checking it out on the corner of his eye. Man, that was a little excitement there all of a sudden, wasn't it? Yeah, that was cool. Yeah, like Randy, that, Randy didn't miss a beat either. Let that be a lesson to you guys and girls. If if you what's your if you're at a live wrestling show, especially on TV, and it's not you know entertaining and it's it's dragging a little bit, just jump the guardrail, jump in the fucking ring. You know, let, listen, to you, listen to you, listen to you. Don't <laughs> ladies, gentlemen, men, women, children of all four corners of the globe. Do not listen to my co-host here. Do not jump into the ring just to get attention or because you're bored or because you've had too much to drink or you're trying to impress your friends at home. Do not do that because you will get your ass kicked and then you get arrested. That's the best part. You get your ass kicked, then you go to jail. Yeah, but you know what? Might be cool if you did. I mean, cool for cool for the people watching, not cool for the people that were or a person that was dumb enough to do it. I'm just saying, don't you want to trend on Twitter? Don't you want to make the show entertaining? Listen to you, you sick fuck. You're trying to get people's butts kicked. Come on. I'm just kidding around. Do not do that. They will kick your ass. You will have some paperwork involved. It's not a good call. Macho man finishes him off here. A little help from Miss Elizabeth, who was, uh, either Booker T was out of space or out of place or Liz was, she came scurrying around to the other side in those high heels to make sure she tugged on his leg and he didn't get to just jump off smooth, but not enough to finish the macho man. Macho man picks up the win. Big deal though, to have a singles match with the macho man for, uh, a, essentially a tag wrestler here in Booker T. He's still so early and his run. By the way, we've got, uh, our, our Crispin wall match coming up. He's going to be taking on friend of the show, Scotty Riggs, but first more nitro girls. Oh, nitro girls and fedoras. That's pretty cool. Is this their smooth criminal routine? It is so cool. Yeah, we need more of this. I don't think you can do this in 2019, but I mean, there's cheerleaders for every sports franchise. Why couldn't you do this in 2019, for God's sake? Oh, those fucking the wrestling Twitter people will come for you. Oh, fuck them. They're just they're just looking for something to bitch about. There is nothing wrong. I mean, do you watch music videos? Do oh. you watch the NBA? Do we watch the NFL? I mean, do you watch The Voice? I mean, come on. There are dancing girls everywhere. Why is having girls dancing on a wrestling show considered to be inappropriate or uncool for any part of a wrestling show? I don't get that. Let me try this, Eric. Let me just try this. I'll see what happens. If you, All right, girls, all four of you who are listening, I need you girls <laughs> to get together and let's do a flash mob in the middle of SmackDown and let's have you girls time it where you jump in the ring right before they're about to get started. And then you just do a dance routine, just like what we've seen. 
And, you know, we, we freestyled several months ago here on the show that maybe there should be, you know, the SmackDown gals or something like that. Well, well, damn it. We can still make it happen. Eric doesn't have to be there for it to happen. You can do it in his honor. Just slide in there on, on live on TV on Friday. And when they take you backstage, tell Bruce, we said, hello. Say <laughs> Yeah. Right before they take you out in handcuffs. Oh, by the way, I, I can't believe I, I buried the lead here. We've got some phenomenal shirts over at ericbischoff.com. For one, I'm a big fan of uh, unfuckwithable, which we've talked about as a word that describe Ron Simmons a lot. It's one of the cooler shirts that we've got. But then we have got a straight out of Compton inspired shirt that says straight out of catering, which if you're a fat guy like me, this is a great shirt. Uh, and there's even one that has a new Japan inspired twist. Instead of the lion in the middle, it's a caricature of, uh, Eric Bischoff. Instead of King of sports, new Japan pro wrestling, it's King of catering, Eric Bischoff, 83 weeks. We've also got a King of the ring inspired King of catering. Yes. King of catering. But the two that I know you're going to love the most, Eric, one is, uh, a, the, the drawing of you and it says Bish, please just pretty good. And then one that looks like a wooden sign with a donkey on it. And it says Eric's donkey show where the big boys play. I got to get that. <laughs> What's great is behind the scenes. I sent Eric this graphic and, and he immediately replied, my God, you got to check this out. Eric's donkey show where the big boys play. Check it out right now. Ericbischoff.com. While we're um, watching here, I'm checking my settings because I've just lost my audio in my headphones, and I want to make sure that, for whatever reason, that doesn't affect the um, audio input, which is my voice. So bear with me for just a minute. No big deal. While you're trying to uh, troubleshoot, we're checking out Scotty Riggs trying to pull the hair out of Chris Benoit. You just changed the setting there. It sounds back to normal on my end. Speaking of hair, Charles Robinson wearing it out here. He looks like, I don't know. That almost looks like a different person from the Charles Robinson. We know now, where are you at time code wise? He may have gotten a little taller. Uh, I'm at uh, one hour, 36, 08, 09, 10, 11. Snapmare, snapmare by Chris Benoit at 136, 17. 18. All right, I'm at 136, 44. This is as close as we're going to get. By the way, I can say, sound, make myself sound really smart here by being able to predict what's going to happen next, <laughs> only because I'm running about 15 <laughs> seconds ahead of you. I love the. I uh, bet you. I bet you right now, Chris Benoit. I, I think he, no, he's going to take a shot to the midsection. Oh, look, there he's doing it. It's almost like you're you're interviewing for a job here. The way you're predicting everything, like you're. You I know, wanna, right? You're going to be like a. Uh, a dirt sheet writer before you know it. Here's what I think is going to happen. But, you know, things can change. <laughs> Let me cover my ass. What's Scotty Riggs doing now? Do you know? You know, I'm not sure. Uh, but I know I know he listens to our show, and he doesn't miss an episode of, uh, of Arn Anderson's show either. So he's a big podcast listener. I think he's, I think he's in Florida because occasionally he'll post pictures of the beach. This is where we're, and I'm still in Florida. I'm going to be in Florida until at least the middle of January. And this is, I think, where probably more wrestlers live in Florida than any other state. 
in the United States. Well, I guess I know why. Number one, the weather's great. Number two, there's no state income tax. There's, you know, two major, three major airports. So I, I get why everybody lives here. But can you think of another state that is the home of more wrestlers than Florida? I can't. No, it's got to be, well, a few reasons. One, the climate. Two, state taxes. And three, I recently learned that you can be sued and they can't take your house. I mean, OJ Simpson, they took everything that man owns, but they weren't able to take his house. You, you can, that's the one thing that they can't take. No matter what you do, you could go out and, and commit one of the most heinous crimes against somebody and they could sue you for everything that you have. And they won't get your house if you have one in Florida. So there you go, boys and girls. You learn something new every day. Yep. And then, but the no state income tax thing is a big thing to me. We don't have any state income tax in Wyoming either, which is one of the reasons I was excited to move there. There's no state income tax in Tennessee. There's no state income tax in Texas. There's no state income tax in South Dakota, I think. There's a couple places where there are no state income taxes. But I think the combination of no state income tax and, and the weather is probably what does it. Yeah, I mean, I like the weather better in California, but the tax is crazy. The The weather in California, Southern California weather is the best. I'm not going to lie. I love Southern California when it comes to the weather. There's a lot of things I don't like about Southern California, um, but taxes are at the top of the list. It is the most expensive state to do business in. Uh, I, I mean, I think it's worse than New York. It's horrible. It's horrible doing business in California. Can you believe that, uh, that guy close Tory Wilson, it's hard to imagine. I know, right? You just, how did that happen? What were the, what were the conditions? What were the variables? What was it about Billy Kidman that Tory Wilson found so attractive? And I'm not knocking, you know, Hey, Billy Kidman is a super guy, super guy. Good looking guy too, I guess, by most people's standards, but damn, Tori Wilson? Come on. Man, I that's was, extra, re- I was really that's, extra, that's, that's extra special hot sauce. It's kind of cool to see Van Hammer actually show up to a booking here. See, there you go again. Christmas spirit out the fucking window. <laughs> this gone. <laughs> on shift rated and now who are we going to bury next who can we make fun of next oh there'll be somebody sure sure there will probably be me probably i mean but it's a, it's an oldie but a goodie people love when i bust your balls and you wig out and we start screaming it's good stuff but i don't wig out as much anymore do i i know it's not I, the same i, I, I try I, to I, I try so hard i try to control myself you're making me a better person Despite the fact that you, despite the fact that you're being a dick, you're making me a better person in the process. Trial by fire, baby. This is smoky, smoky, scary sting. You know what? This is the best thing, man. You talk about such a character change when you really think about the vibrant, full of color, blonde hair, flat top surfer sting to this one. That could not be more different, but I mean. Those two contrasts, I don't know that we've really talked about that, but you look at the, uh, the neon sting to this black and white sting, and then you look at the red and yellow Hulk Hogan and you look at NWO Hulk Hogan 
or Hollywood Hogan. There are some similarities there where it's just, man, it's a 180. I get it. Uh, so this is the, uh, the big moment. JJ Dillon is going to, uh, address the situation and, and bring out Bret Hart. And I think you're going to show up here as well. What's what, what's going through my mind right now? Do you know? Did you have you seen this? Because I haven't watched this in advance. I like to I like to react spontaneously to what I see, so I don't watch them in advance of doing them. You're doing some weird stuff here because you're going to come out and you're going to start talking about you know seven seven point five million dollars per year and weekends off on Ted's money. So you're really pushing that, like um, Gene welcomes Brett to Nitro and. Brett says, uh, it took a long time to get here, but it's great to be here. It's great to be in Ric Flair country. And the whole concept with the, the special referee for the match is what you were talking about earlier about, you know, kicks and punches be allowed. So this is a special guest referee for Zabisco Bischoff. I think most people in hindsight think, oh, Brett was a special referee for the main event. No, it's about Zabisco Bischoff. And, um. Brett in his promo would acknowledge where he's at saying it's great to be in Ric Flair country. And Brett says something like, if you're looking for a referee, is that what you want a referee? I'd be honored to referee this match. And you said something like, yo, Brett, 7.5 million a year of Ted Turner's money. You, me for life. And Brett says to you, he looks pretty happy. And you say something like, do what you can, when, if you can, or I'm sorry, he says, do what you can, when, if you can, but don't look to me for any help because nobody knows better than I do what it's like to be get screwed over by a referee. So you're on your own Jack. And then you repeat Brett 7.5 million a year weekends off Brett and Brett walks away. Hmm. By the way, so, er so my my heel character was looking for someone to give me an edge in my match against Abisco and who other than to, to go after a referee that knows what it's like to be screwed. So I, and, and give him seven and a half million dollars. So I, I, I get it. I understand the premise. Are you high on life or did you do a couple of rails before you come out on this segment? No, I was high on life. You're fucking jumping around. Like you're coked up here. No, it wasn't my thing. Never was. You're like in the best mood in this segment. These shit-eating grins and these facials, and it was a Christmas season. We were com- we were coming into the holidays. We were outperforming the WWE by a mile. We were setting the tone. We were changing the industry. We were breaking all kinds of records. We were selling out everything that we did. So of course I was. But man, I do look a little goofy here, don't I? <laughs> I love you're like dismiss, dismiss. Well, fuck, I don't remember that day, but. <laughs> Looking at me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a fucking idiot. I'm bouncing around like a 12-year-old kid. I think I really wanted to hit AJ or uh, JJ. I mean, I dude. still I still do. I mean, JJ's got a face you just want to punch. Look at you. What are you doing? Then Brett comes out wearing a leather jacket just like me. That's so cool. Gimmick infringement. No, that's so cool. And I, I appreciate it, Brett, coming out there and paying his respect to me the way he did by wearing a leather jacket, just like mine. Sure. I, I mean, that's what I took it as. 
Yep. Yep. Look at me. Eric's so happy. He's jumping up and down like a 12-year-old kid. Oh, my God. We got to come up with a, an Eric Bischoff doll. Next year in time for Christmas, we don't need Elf on a Shelf. We need... Oh, <laughs> Eric Bischoff with a nose full. That's it. <laughs> That's great. Didn't happen. Just having fun. Didn't happen. Look at you. Doing the old Notre Dame shit to the crowd. You're just wired up, man. Well, I did that a lot. I did that was that was kind of my gimmick. That and pointing to my dimples. That's outstanding. I didn't, you know what I just realized? What's that, bud? You're doing your best Jimmy Hart impression here. Oh my God. You are such a dick. No, but I mean, he jumped around, baby. I mean, that's, you just got to do that. Get that high pitched Mickey Mouse shit going. And you're I couldn't, I, I couldn't get my voice to squeak like that. If you put my nuts in a vice, I couldn't get my voice that high. Well, I know what I'm trying next time you stop through. <laughs> Let's just here. see. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, what would happen? You, me, Ted Turner's money for life. Brett was, you know, Brett was so cool here. He never changed expression once. No, I don't, oh, it caught me just when I thought I had Brett in the palm of my hand, just when I thought he was going to buy that seven and a half million dollar bullshit. He pumps the brakes. Uh-oh. Eric Bischoff could be in trouble in his match against Larry Zabisco. Just when you think you had Bret Hart right where you wanted him and you had complete control of the situation, Eric, he pulls the rug out from underneath you and throws a giant fucking monkey wrench into your plans. Oh, shit. Larry Zabisco's going to kick my ass. That's what I'm thinking right now. Unless I... Unless I can fix this, unless I can resolve this problem, I'm in a world of trouble. How's that for color commentary on my own frame of mind? Brett's just looking at me like I'm crazy. I wonder what Brett was really thinking at this moment. Uh, I can't believe I'm getting paid for this. <laughs> A lot. I mean, he's getting the, the richest contract of his career, and he's going to referee a match between Larry Zabisco and Eric Bischoff. Look at your pose. Look at the way. <laughs> Listen, I was one of the best characters going. You have to admit it. Oh, I'm not. It's, it, it's hard for me to say that with a straight face, but it's true. You are a great television character without question. You know, which is one of the reasons I think when you went back to WWE earlier this year, a lot of people were like, oh, they're going to bring him in on screen. Cause you did such a good job at it. Yeah. But that was 20 some odd years ago. I'm a little outside of the demo nowadays. If you know what I mean, how many, how many 64 year old people do you think wrestling fans want to watch on television? I'll talk Hogan. Uh, with that exception, a Ric Flair 70. Uh, okay. Another exception. I'm just saying, I mean, when I think of, you know, old time elderly gentlemen who people want to see on TV, it's like Vince McMahon, Eric Bischoff, Hulk Hogan, Ric Flair, old time, 
elderly elderly bro you're aarp like when you were in town everywhere we went i let you drive because we got to park closer we did you have muck, to eat. you mucker father <laughs> elderly we did have to eat supper at 4 30 but it was worth yeah. it <laughs> and we went to denny's to get the old age instant discount right? <laughs> yeah if we let you pay it was always 15 percent cheaper it was great oh you're such a dick elderly it's the first time anybody's called me elderly in fairness i was referring i'm 64 years old i'm not elderly i was referring to pop pop he's 70 okay that's that's old it is old oh my god it's older than dirt does dirt get that old i think so okay here comes professional wrestling's first and foremost metrosexual marcus alexander bagwell how much money do you think lifetime he spent on disposable razors Glad between the disposable razors, the nutritional supplements, <laughs> we'll leave it go at that. And, you know, silicone calf muscles. I don't know. He spent a lot of money. Yeah. I don't think a, a lot of people are in the loop on that, but he even let MTV film. Like, uh, I forget what the, the true life was, but a decade or maybe 15, maybe even more years ago. There was a reality series called MTV true life. And it would be like, I have this, I am doing that, whatever his was like a botched plastic surgery. And he had calf implants that were leaking and not going according to plan. So he met him at a new Charlie's or something and talked about his calf implants. And, uh, then all these years later, I realized, Hey, that's why he wrestled with these loose boots because he was concerned with what flair would call minuscule calves. <laughs> minuscule and you know you look at bagwell and he's you know he's got big you know muscled up shoulders he's got a big thick neck he's got you know great arms great chest but for whatever reason you know i guess his calf muscles didn't respond to the type of workout or nutritional supplements he was using at the time and he just couldn't get calves he, he had the calves of a 135 pound guy you know, in a, a, the upper body of a 240 pounder. So he, he decided to get silicone calf implants and took a tremendous amount of heat as a result. Let's talk about that. What type, I mean, how do the boys know? Is he stupid enough to tell them or he has to tell the office, Hey, I can't work this week. Cause I got calf implants. I don't know. I don't remember that. That was before I really got into management. I was, this was when I was still an announcer. So I'm not sure how he, uh, appropriated the time off to be able to pull that off. But the abuse he had to take backstage was relentless. Yeah, I'm sure. By the way, um, Oakland was scheduled to interview Lex Luger. Luger's music would play, but it was Bagwell who came out. Then they switched to the NWO music and Buff is essentially saying Luger's never and won't ever beat him. Luger's going to come out and make fun of Buff for celebrating DQ and count out wins like he won the Super Bowl. And then he says, while you were jabbering away, Buff, I checked with the production crew and they said there's time for a match. And Buff said there's no referee. So Luger's going to bring out Nick Patrick. And Buff says he needs to be warmed up to fight. And Luger slaps him to the mat and we're off to the races. Spontaneous combustion. You never know what's going to happen. Isn't that more interesting than having this match booked and promoting it a week earlier? 
When something happens spontaneously, when it feels organic, guess what? Subconsciously, the viewer at home thinks it's real. They allow themselves to get sucked into the storyline or the angle or whatever it is you're trying to do here. Spontaneity, folks. If you're listening out there, come on. Spontaneity. Make it feel real. I'm begging you. Quit promoting this shit. Doesn't matter. You're promoting this stuff that's going to happen next week and nobody cares. Doesn't that tell you something? Wake the fuck up. Sorry, went off on a tangent. Let's talk about uh, Bret Hart the next day. He says, the following morning at the Charlotte airport, I ran into none other than Earl and Dave Hebner. Earl came up to me with his hand out and an apologetic look on his face that refused to shake his hand, warning him calmly, don't talk to me. He insisted that he didn't know what was up with Sean and Vince until he was on his way out to the ring in Montreal. What do you mean? You didn't know. I told you, Earl, you promised me you swore on your kids, but in the end, I forgave him. I knew that Vince held Earl's livelihood in his hands. And the only thing Earl was guilty of was not having the guts to take a stand against the man who wrote the checks. And then Dave asked me if I thought Bischoff would either take him or Earl on. And I told him I'd ask. Do you remember ever being asked or ever considering doing business with Dave or Earl Hebner? Mm, if he did ask me, I don't remember it. I'm not saying he didn't. I'm just saying I don't remember it. I think I would have remembered it. I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say, but I, I th- you know, it's like, wait a minute. Brett Hart just asked me to hire the referee that was a part of the screw job. Right. That would that kind of would have stood stood out to me. But then again, who knows? Maybe he did. Maybe it was over the phone and it was part of another conversation. I don't know. I don't want to call him. I'm not going to call bullshit on it. I just don't remember it. Two things I want to ask you about. Uh, One is this comment from the observer. Even though Bischoff is a good performer in his role and has a major match coming at the pay-per-view, the idea of him running out four different times on Nitro is bad on a lot of levels. With so many quality wrestlers not able to get any airtime, let alone interview time, it's a morale killer at best. The charges of an ego being out of control are going to naturally be everywhere. He's not saying that you have an ego out of control, but he is saying that this would lead a lot of guys who aren't getting TV time to be upset. He's freestyling and he's probably not far off. Did you ever consider when you would see a format like this, like, oh, four times? I don't know that I need to be out there that often. Or was it? Well, you know, on some level, I got to get this shit over and I got to sell it. And I I don't know who I can count on to do it, but I know I can. So I'll go do it. It was neither, neither. Um, it, it, and I look what Dave wrote at that time was accurate, true, um, a good observation, solid observation. Um, I think in, in hindsight, you know, I wouldn't let any performer go out four times on the show. Knowing what I know now, you know, that I didn't really, you know, I, it's not that I didn't know what it said. I, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't put that much credibility into it. Um, but I wouldn't have gone out as often as I did. And I, and I think the reason for it though, and, I, and again, this is going to sound like rationalizing it and justifying it. I'm not trying to do that because it, at the end of it all, it, it is wrong. You're either overexposing the talent or you're, you're spending too, you're, you're overexposing the talent and, you know, overshadowing other talent that needs the time. But here's the thing. It was fucking working. And it's hard not to go out 
and, and put yourself or put somebody else in certain situations when you know you've got a hot story and you've got a hot angle. And in my case, and it's really awkward talking about myself like this, but there wasn't a lot of people in the industry that had more heat. And I'm talking about in WWE or in WCW that had more heat than I did at this point. I just did. And, you know, part of the, the real pleasure in being a heel that has that much heat is you know you're going to be able to get a lot of people over with it. In other words, in my case in particular, and this is, you know, this is really the beginning of me allowing people to kick my ass. Up until this point, I think, you know, people would get to me occasionally, but for the most part, I was playing that chicken shit heel pretty well and not allowing people to get their hands on me with a few exceptions. Um, and because of that, I was able to sustain my heat. But like I said, the cool part of that is, you know, at some point you're going to sh- you're going to give that heat back to somebody. You're going to give all that energy back and, and that equity. So it, it was a lot of fun. But I think that probably clouded my judgment more than anything. Not not the ego part. And I was like, oh, I get to be on TV again. That wasn't it. It's never been that for me. It's never been that for me. Not the first time I didn't the first time I was on camera. I didn't want to be on camera. <laughs> I had no choice in the matter. You know, when I became an announcer, um, it was more on necessity. And it was something that I was decent at. I wasn't one of the best announcers going, and I know that. But in, in terms of play-by-play, I was not as good as Tony, but close enough to be functional. And then when Nitro came along, I was probably better than anybody in that play-by-play role because it was mine. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew it. I knew where we were going. I knew what I was trying to communicate better than anybody. Um, and I was probably more passionate than anybody else could have been in that role for obvious reasons. Uh, those are the reasons why I did it, not because my ego required it. <clears throat> but I do think my judgment was overshadowed by the fact that I had so much heat that every time I walked out there, you'd get that reaction. And all that did was made me go, okay, great. You know, that's just they're just investing in the character. They're investing in the story and we can use this to get other things over. And that really was my logic, but it was, it was bad logic. I love that NWO sign that said Nash was Oz. That's awesome. I just saw that. I've never, <laughs> that's funny. Something else that's in the observer in this era. It says, uh, Bischoff signed a four year contract extension. Boy of all the times to get an extension. Just a couple of days before the biggest pay-per-view ever when everything sold out. This is good timing for a new contract. Congratulations, concert. Oh, I did. I said a new contract. Yeah. I was, I was waiting. Oh, well, that's why I was so fucking giddy when yeah. I was in the ring. You got paid, baby. I didn't have a nose full of blow. I had just signed a new four-year deal. You didn't have a nose full of blow. You had a pocket full of dough. There you go. God, it, we could we could be hip hop artists. Well, I don't know about that.
Kurt Hennig. God, I miss Kurt. By the way, how great would he be today if he was still around with this whole NXT AEW stuff and the rise of conventions, the rise of podcasting? He would be a natural fit for any of those. Oh my God, yes. Especially at a podcast. He's another one that would great sense of humor. The stories that he could tell. Oh my God. That would be awesome. His timing and wit and sense of humor, the perfect cast, the perfect podcast. Come on. So many good names. Would have been great. And you know he would have had some fun uh, interactions at conventions and, and stuff. Can you, I mean, can you imagine doing a podcast with Kurt Henning just right. asking him about his favorite ribs? Oh my God. It would have been tremendous. Because he was like the king of ribs, right? Is that what you've heard over the years? Yeah, him and Fuji were supposedly two of the biggest. Hey, I know that you uh, you get tired of me quoting the Observer, but man, there was something in it this week that I was just like, "This is this is fucking something else." You know, the the new Richard Jewell movie. You and I talked about, and our and our friend uh, who listens to the show and is a, and is a big fan of our podcast. Uh, Paul Hauser is, uh, the, the lead character. He, he plays Richard Jewell in the movie and in the observer this week, Dave wrote Mike Tanay and noting the new Clint Eastwood movie on Richard Jewell that came out noted that Jewell once came to a WCW show in Chicago. There was a party at the house of blues arranged by the general Bruce MacArthur, who was one of Ric Flair's best friends. And as part of the Chicago Blackhawks ownership group, Jewell was in town because he and his mother were guests on Oprah that day. And went to Nitro after. Jewel came over to meet Bobby Heenan and Tanae. When Bobby Heenan said, Richard, let me take you down memory lane. Kaboom. Oh, Jewel's God. face turned completely pale and he and his mother quickly left. And that was in the Observer. And I thought that is the most Bobby Heenan story I have ever heard fucking ever. Wow. I guess <laughs> you never heard I that one. I never heard that before, but as you were reading it to me, I could actually hear Bobby Heenan's voice saying the words. That is so typical Bobby. I don't know if it really happened or not or something that somebody, I, I would imagine Mike today must have told, told that version of the story or his, his take on the story to Dave. Um, so it's probably true, but God, I could hear that. I could hear that. Oh, what a heel. Kaboom. Uh, by the way, go check that movie out. Uh, no matter what you think of, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood or politics or any of that nonsense, this is uh, a wrestling fan. Like one of us, man, front and center. We got to, uh, we got to support our brethren. Go check out Paul's new movie. I love Clint Eastwood directed movies. Did you see the mule? I did. I love that. I just watched that the other night. I was having a hard time getting to sleep. So I put it on, on Netflix or wherever I found it. It is such a great movie. Clint's the best. He's such a great actor it just feels and, a, like, and a great director. It just feels like you can't do anything. You know, you can't turn on the media at all anymore without there being a controversy somewhere for something about someone. And it feels like uh, with this movie, I guess somebody took issue with, I don't know the, the representation of a woman. And I don't know all the details, but I just know there's a little bit of controversy, but when I actually look and see like, you know, reviews from people who went to the movie, it did really, really well. No, a guy like Clint Eastwood is going to get a ton of, uh, negative publicity from anybody that, you know, pays any attention to his politics. 
and they're going to just shit all over the movie because they don't like his politics, which is really a shame. I mean, the movie is the movie. His politics or his politics are two different things. But, you know, people just – I think so many people wake up every morning just praying they're going to hear or read something that makes them feel like a victim so they can go on social media and be critical of other people and demonstrate how much of a victim they are or how woke they are or how much better than they are than everybody else. And it's just, it's, it's sad. It's sad. It makes social media not so much fun. I've actually quit following, you know, a a number of people, not because I dislike them or, or, or anything else, but just the negativity in social media is just overwhelming. Yeah. Really. To the point that, I don't, Go ahead, bro. I don't know that you saw, but the Young Bucks actually got off Twitter last Friday. I can imagine, you know, in the position that they're in and just the the negativity that you can find online. I, you know, look, I can guarantee you there's a lot of people that are really uh, supportive of AEW. They've got a great fan base. You know, just about everybody wants them to succeed because we do need alternatives. There needs to be something different. There needs to be competition. There just does in order for the professional wrestling sports entertainment industry to be healthy. It has to exist. Otherwise it'll just die a slow, very slow, but a slow death. So I think anybody that's really honest with themselves and knows anything about the industry should be very supportive of AEW. That being said, it doesn't mean that you can't be critical of them or question or challenge them uh, from time to time the same way you would your favorite sports team. Or, you know, one of my favorite shows Mrs. B and I watch on TV right now is Power. There are times when I'm watching that series on television and I'm going, why did they do this like this? Why didn't they do it like that? I mean, that's part of being engaged in something. But when you're just being negative for the just the sheer twisted fucked up joy of being negative so you can watch other people react to it at that point eh, time out gotta go so i don't blame them you know they're in a, the bucks are in anybody associated with aew right now they're in, they're still in that, a little bit of that honeymoon phase but i'm beginning to see a groundswell of people that are just wanting to take shots just for the sake of taking shots to prove that they're smarter or they could do it better or whatever and it's it's very unfortunate one more thing, and then I'll move on. I do want to plug our buddy's movie. Uh, the Richard Jewell movie has a, a 96% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. So keep that in mind. If you hear somebody pooping on the movie, 96% of those who saw it recommended it and dug it. So yeah, don't listen to another critics. fan. Look at there, two fans coming in. Charlotte is fired up. I look at, look at Randy Anderson. He's going to rip his fucking eye out. <laughs> and DDP's trying to get the guy to do downward facing dog. He's going to be okay. <laughs> no, and those Charlotte cops that uh, were working with Doug, I'm sure, took care of the situation once they got it backstage. I guarantee that person who tried to hit that ring was feeling it the next morning. Oh, without question. So DDP calling out Mr. Perfect, Kurt saying, Hey, how you feeling? And of course the NWO is going to come out and, uh, as they make their way to the ring, DDP is going to scoot through the crowd. And then we're going to see, uh, quite the finish here to this show. And this is what nitro was all about, man. The hot finish. You guys were doing this really, really well. Here you come strutting out with the big gold belt, Conan, Hulk Hogan, the macho man in tow. And 
second wave has Scott Norton and looks like we got Scott Hall back there and Mike Jones. Got everybody. See the A B, the T the A team, the B team, the C team. We were all one team. We were even all though, even though Kurt was just here and retreated, he's back now. And look, everyone's looking up. The fans are selling it. DDP going through the crowd. DDP in 1997, man, became a player. You look at the beginning of this year, the diamond cutter with the outsiders and the Superdome, and then we're closing the year and he's going through the crowd. And he's a made man now. And it's all because of, you know, the interaction with the NWO first with the outsiders, then the monumental feud with Randy Savage that year, the one feud of the year in pro wrestling illustrated really, really a banner year for DDP. I honestly, I think it, a lot of it started. I mean, there, it, there's no one thing, you know, that got DDP over as much as it did. Um, it was a combination of a lot of things, including and probably not the least of which is his own hard work and commitment. But getting rid of all of his goofy ass gimmicks and making him really, you know, a, a man of the people, coming down through the crowd, leaving through the crowd, you know the kind of reaction that you're going to get when you do that. And that crowd reaction, you know, of, of, to DDP as he was either coming down through the crowd or leaving through the crowd, probably got him over as much as anything, uh, any one thing. Um, it it changed everything for him, and he really did. He became, you know, he became the workings man talent, if you will. Ooh, what's this? The lights go out. You know what that means? Spooky cookie. Sting. Where'd he go? The lights are flashing. The mystery of it all. Oh, the lights are back on. Where did he go? He disappeared. This is craziness. Hulk Hogan, nervous as a cat on a hot tin roof. Another Eric fan Bischoff. jumping in the ring again. Jesus Christ. They don't breed them that smart in Charlotte, do they? How, how about Dillinger was smart and climbed on the inside of the ring knowing as many as we've had jumps so far, as soon as these lights go out, somebody's going to jump in. He was already in the ring waiting. How many fans right now are, do you think, as, as we're watching this, now that it's dark, how many fans are thinking about, now I can go in, now I, I can make it happen? Well, I'm really hoping that it happens next week on SmackDown with a bunch of ladies doing a flash mob dance. You called for it. SmackDown hey, did we, did we see any 83 weeks uh, posters on SmackDown last night? Do you know? I heard that there was uh, a T-shirt, but I I, uh, I didn't get to see the actual episode. I'm going to have to look for that. Ooh, look at Sting. Now he's on top of the Oh, my God. He's moving around the entire arena. This guy is not human. He's not really. This is, sp- this is kooky, spooky Sting here. This is really kooky, spooky Sting. Sting on the, on the top of the WCW set is such a cool visual. You know, I wish you guys would have sold that as a poster. People would have bought it. Can't we rip it off and sell it now? Why not? You know, worst we'll get is a cease and desist from WWE. And at this point I've got so many, I use it to keep a, wa- a wobbly coffee table level. Not only that, but you, we can make a lot of money before that cease and desist assist hits. Spoken we can like sell a- that. We can sell that idea out before the cease and desist even gets here. By the time the cease and desist comes, we have already made all of our money. We would have already desisted. God damn it. <laughs> this is a business plan. 
Oh my gosh. And, and business is white hot for WCW. You guys are on your, your death march for WCW Starcade 1997, the biggest main event in wrestling history at that point, certainly the most talked about in the history of WCW. But I mean, I think you'd have to go back to Hogan Savage at WrestleMania five, maybe even Hogan Andre at WrestleMania three, but even those, none of them had the length of the storyline that this one did, nor the heat. We're on our way and you can go enjoy that show anytime you'd like in the archives at 83 weeks.com. Uh, we should mention, as you might imagine, nitro gets a 4.1 for this show. Raw gets a 2.7. Uh, so it smiles all around and it'll be smiles next week. Of course, this is our next to last show of 2019. We're going to uh, finish out the year strong next week. We'll be covering Starcade 1993, uh, Ric Flair, big Van Vader for the world title. And oddly enough, right here back in Charlotte, where this very Nitro took place. What are the odds of that? Odds of it are pretty good. Charlotte was a fun place to work. Well, and we hope you've enjoyed our work this week, visiting a little Wayback Machine from 1997. Next week, it will not be Watch Along Jones, so be be comfy this uh, Christmas and sitting around and watching Starcade and the recliner. Get ready. Starcade 93 next Monday, right here on Westwood One. It's 83 weeks with Eric Bischoff. Merry Christmas. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.